Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Today, we start a series of uh, guests, one of my favorite times of the year, uh, and today we have with us um, a very good friend, Bishop Daryl Harris. Uh, I talked to you briefly last week. Um, we've worked together in something called Ceasefire, which is dealing with the ending of gang violence in Detroit and ministering to those who have been damaged by violence. He is the founder. Uh, I'm a co-founder with him, but he's the founder of the Faith-Based Coalition, a collection of churches and ministries across uh, Detroit and the metro area um, with the uh, goal, again, of assisting those who have struggled with violence and also spiritually shaping what's going on in the city. He was singularly responsible along with the team working with him, but it was really him, he himself. He was cited by both the mayor and the chief of police um, that in the events of what was transpiring around our country last summer, um, that he was singularly responsible for uh, ensuring that a f- appropriate protest did not turn into inappropriate violence and damage to our city, something that shocked the entire nation, that we, with the history that we've had, did not go that way, but instead kept that channeled in an appropriate fashion both the mayor and the chief of police cited specifically Bishop Harris being on the ground in each of those events, um, being a man of peace, a man of God, and a man of wisdom, uh, bringing that to that. He is a University of Michigan graduate. For those of you that are Michigan State, you can hate on him if you want. Um, He has been someone who has just been a good friend. He's pastor of the uh, Total Life Church. And um, I don't know of practically anyone I've worked with who just has a greater heart, for God, we've been in many situations, and it's just come forward. And the first time we met was when we were getting involved with Osborne High School. And there were 400 screaming kids in their brand-new gym that had just been provided for them. And, and all the other speakers, the kids are talking through all of it. But when it came time for prayer at the end and Bishop stepped up to pray, they all got quiet. That just caught my attention. I said, I got to get to know that guy. And so we've been working together now for years and years He's someone I deeply appreciate. I know you as a congregation know him as well. Would you please warmly welcome Bishop Daryl Harris. Amen. Amen. Well, we praise God today. Amen. I guess I can finally say once again, I'm back. I'm always excited to be here at Rock Point. Uh, We really are sister churches. Uh, On last Sunday, the exact same thing happened at our church. Our Wi-Fi just went crazy. And uh, we ended up not being able to live stream and do our Zoom. And uh, so we just kept going, as good old saints keep doing. We just keep going. And uh, it turned out to be a wonderful service. But it's really good to know that you're so connected with people 
that their experiences can be shared with you. Your experiences can be shared with them. So we're excited to be here on today. And I just want you to join me in just celebrating your amazing anointed pastor today. And Pastor Randy, if you will, he is awesome. He is wonderful. Um, you know, and I don't just say that because he pays me. No, let me stop. <laughs> he doesn't pay me to say that. Uh, but, you know, he's just been such a great brother, a great friend. Uh, this year, uh, I'm so accustomed, and really this is the first time preaching out since then. Uh, this year, my mother passed on, went on to be uh, with the Lord. And the second call, the only person that beat Pastor Randy at calling me was my other spiritual brother, uh, Bishop James Williams. But he was right there on the phone. What do you need? What do you need? And how many of you know that sometimes good friends, they don't just supply money and things like that. It's the compassion that they're able to show. People ask me all the time, how do you do this work? How do you sit in front of victims? How do you sit with people who've been shot or people who have been killed and they've lost their loved ones? What do you say? And I say, sometimes I say the most important thing that can be said in those moments. And they're like, what's that? Nothing. Sometimes presence and the ministry of presence is so much more important and so much more powerful. And that is what Pastor Randy and his brotherhood with me has shared with me. So I just wanted to take that time to celebrate him today uh, for being an awesome man of God and a great brother. My mother called him my brother. So that sticks. Right? All right, so let's just jump into the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm so excited to see you all again. So much more to say, but, you know, uh, Miss Lori, she tried to set me up. You know, she asked for the scripture and everything, and I sent her out a few scriptures and the theme, and she texted a preacher back the most dangerous text she could ever send. She said, do you have more scriptures? I said, no. <laughs> Rock Point likes me now. I don't want to be up there all day, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I'm a teacher and preacher. The more scriptures I see, the more I want to explain and preach. So, no, we're going to just try to stick with this one and deal with that, right? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It reads, even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. And I want you today, as always, to help me preach this to the people sitting next to you and around you. But start by telling them this. I am pursuing better things. Just tell them that. That's it. Now, if you don't know anybody to tell that to, this is your church, so I can't tell you who to say it to. You can, you can say it. It's going to be okay. In life, I have learned that scientifically there is only one quantifiable desire that the human race has. And believe it or not, it is not money. It's not necessarily a relationship to the right person, although those things can be a part of it. But the one quantifiable desire that the human race seeks after and pursues is simply happiness. You go through the room and you ask people, what do you want out of life? You can have anything you want. 
And whatever they name is going to be connected to their thought of what brings happiness to their lives. Because happiness is a quantifiable, statistical desire that has been proven scientifically that every person in the human race seeks after. People just want to be happy. And yet, in the midst of this desire, this strong desire, this great need, if you will, to be happy, oftentimes we forego the three biblical basic qualities that could really lead us to happiness. They're not talked about as much. They're not discussed as much. Especially in the church where they should be discussed because, well, it's the church and we follow the Bible, right? So you would think that these three qualities, you would hear them all the time. You would see them in practice all the time. No, they're not prosperity, power, and persistence, you know, because that's what we preach about a lot. You know, America in our churches, you hear a lot about power. You hear a lot about persistence. You, you know, you hear a lot about prosperity because we feel that those are things that can bring us happiness. But how many of us in here know people that's got a lot of money, but it doesn't mean that they're happy? How many people we know that's got a lot of power, but it doesn't mean that they're happy? So then there is something else on the other spectrum where God is trying to get a message to us that, hey, there's something beyond the earthly realm, some qualities, some attributes that could really lead you into this happiness, especially as my children. And they're not talked about a lot. I want to give those three to you, right? The first one is mercy, right? And I can tell by the looks on some of your faces that, yes, I am right. (laughs) It's hard to talk about forgiveness, let alone to walk in it, right? Mercy, showing mercy to people. How do you show mercy to someone who has intentionally brought harm to you? How can you forgive someone who has, as the scripture says, came right out of Jesus' mouth in the King James Version is written in red. He says, those who spitefully misuse you. How do you pray for them and forgive them? And yet, we don't understand that being a forgiving person, being merciful, practicing mercy is a way to your happiness. Forgiveness is only a little bit about the person you forgive. It's a lot about you and making sure that you're not walking around with the kind of baggage in your life that can cause you to be stagnant in everything that you do and everything that you try to achieve. So mercy is an important attribute to your happiness. Another quality that's scriptural that could lead us to happiness that often doesn't get talked about, it's almost like a swear word in the church, right? It's called contentment. Yeah, just learning how to be content as Paul mentioned, in whatever state that you're in. And how many of you know that that's complicated? It's easier to say than it is to do. To be content, you know, no matter what lot, to be able to say, it is well with my soul. You know, that's easy to do when things are going well, but when things are not so well. And yet contentment is not you know, a spiritual gift in the Bible. Contentment is a lesson. Paul said, I have learned as I've gone through this life, I've learned how to be content because life will teach you that if you open your ears and open your eyes to it. So contentment can lead to your happiness. 
I promise you that if you only know how to be happy when things are going your way, but you lose your sense of happiness when things are not going your way, I promise you, you, can't, you, you won't be happy, especially in this lifetime. You've got to learn how to have a balance there and how to learn that lesson so that it roots you and grounds you so that your happiness is stable even when your life is not. And at the same time, there's another quality that I like to talk about today that I don't think gets talked about a lot, and it's the one that I really want to focus on. It's the quality of improvement. Improvement. Yeah, improvement is a gateway to your happiness. When things are not improving in your life or not improving in your circumstances, not improving in your health, if things are not improving, then I can guarantee you that you will be sliding backwards out of your happiness into dissatisfaction into depression, into sadness, into rage, into frustration. Why? Because we are built in the image and likeness of God. And see, something that you got to know about God is that God has worked change into our natural existence. And I want you to repeat this after me. Change is natural. There you go. Just jump right in there. Change is natural. Now, it's important for you to understand that because you've been working really hard for things to change. And change is not dependent upon the work that you do. Like, things are going to change. If you wait, things are going to change. All that change takes is that other word that's almost like a swear word, patience. <laughs> that's, and I can tell right now some of you are like, yeah, so this message is almost over, right? Yeah. <laughs> patience is important that we have that because it works itself into allowing change to take place. That's really all that patience is, allowing change to take place. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. I promise you that when you started out in life and really got into the idea of age, when you were 11, you didn't have to work hard to be 12. You just waited. <laughs> and although you were probably waiting for 16 to be magical, 18 to be even more magical, 21, you were out of this world. Then you wanted this clock to stop. Right? It's like we could stop right here. Because see, 30 years later, 40 years later, you know, things have changed and we wish that they would change back. Remember the time when your mom used to call you in to take a nap and you were so frustrated because you were right in the middle of doing something you wanted to do? Now you cry because no one will allow you to take a nap in your house? That's because things change and they change naturally. But all things that change doesn't mean that those same things are transformed. Because, see, transformation is not natural. Transformation is intentional. Transformation is really what God is all about. God is about 
transforming into something that is improved. That's why improvement is such a high quality and brings you to happiness because when you are improving or your state is improving intentionally, you are being more like the God that he has placed in you. You're being more like him. And that's important since we're made in his image and his likeness, since he's breathed into our nostrils his very spirit, it's important that we reflect his glory. It's important that we reflect his purpose. So that means that God is not necessarily a God of change. He's already worked change into our natural existence. God is a God of transformation. God is a God who is always intentionally trying to improve on the model of everything that he's created. Change is so natural that God doesn't have to come down every day and tell a tree to grow. He doesn't have to come down every day and tell the grass to come back. He doesn't have to come every day and tell everything else to fall in place, go in order, get in this, get in that. No, change is worked into that. But in order for things to be improved, God has to stick his hands inside of it. So that means that God is a God of transformation, which means that his purpose then in everything is to see that it is improving. He never created anything to stay the same except his word and himself. He's the only being that's ever said to us, I change not. The reason that God had to remind us of that is so that we could know that especially as long as we're here on this earth, we are not him. <laughs> we change. We go through changes. You know, my wife told me the other day, it's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. And I was like, okay, that doesn't, prerogative doesn't belong to man. <laughs> but, you know, hey, that's neither here nor there, right? It's important that you understand transformation, the God who has placed himself inside of us is a God of transformation who is always intentionally working on the improvement of everything that he's created, especially what he has created as his masterpiece called mankind. Now, why is this important to the message today? Because improvement is really the, the one quality I want to talk about. I want to get into the mercy because, you know, that takes a minute. You know, I don't want to get into the contentment part because some of you are looking at your watches right now. So I don't want to get into that. I just want to talk about the improvement part because if God is constantly improving, shouldn't we constantly be improving like every single day of our lives? God is so into improvement that he even improves himself which seems to be an impossible thing to do. How can God improve himself when he's God? <laughs> and I don't know exactly how, but I can tell you this. Reading the book of the Revelations, those four and 20 elders, those 24 elders, they figured something out because every single time that they pick their crowns up off the floor after a great worship, praise and worship service and dust their crowns off and put them back on their heads and they get ready to sit down, they look at God again and they get back up and they throw their crowns back on the ground and they get back down on their knees and they begin to cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. Which means that every single time that they look at God, they see an improvement. And they've been doing this 
for all eternity. Surely you would think that they would reach a place where they would say, God, okay, we hit the max. You're the same. But they say every time we see him, there's an improvement to his model. There's something else we didn't see before. There's some point of greatness that we didn't have an experience with. I don't know if he turned his head this way, he turned his head that way. I don't know. But something is improved about the God that we were worshiping just two minutes ago. And now all of a sudden, we've got to get back down and we've got to worship him some more. Now, you know that if the angels, the elders who have been doing this for an eternity can look at God and see improvement in him, how much more should we? With all the things we've been through, with all the things these weary eyes have seen, with all the things that we've experienced in this life that were not favorable to us, we should be able to every praise and worship service we have, we should be able to see God in a new light, which causes us to improve our worship improve our praise. You said hallelujah last week. This week you got to say it twice (laughs) because there should be something greater about God that you see in this go around that you experience in this moment that was greater than the time before. So improvement is the model. And so when you talk about improvement, I can't talk about improvement without talking about the kind of God that God is. God is a progressive God. And since he lives in us, it means that we must become a progressive people. Now, I need to put this disclaimer in. When I say progressive, I am not talking about culturally. I am not talking about politically. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. I don't care. (laughs) I'm talking kingdom stuff here. Amen? Talking kingdom stuff. Now, look, this is important. When I say progressive, I'm not talking about culturally or politically because cultural and political progressivism is more about humanity standing up to celebrate itself by introducing and taking in every basis thought that they possibly can and think that they're doing something new under the sun. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? When I say progressive, When I use the word progress throughout this message, I want to give you one simple definition of what I mean when I say progress. And I believe that you're going to agree with me that this is what progress means. This is what it means to be progressive. Are you ready? This is is going to be really deep now. So I need you to brace yourselves. Progress means getting better. I know that was really deep. That was, you know, you had to pull out a second tablet to write that down, right? (laughs) So everybody repeat this after me. Progress means getting better. That's simply what it means. And in the name of getting better, it means that we have to become an intentional being of constantly fulfilling the purpose of God and always seeking to get better. Every single day, we should be pursuing getting better because God is a God of embitterment. Now, when I say better, I'm not talking American getting better. American getting better is confused with getting bigger. American getting better is confused with getting broader. 
We think that getting better means that we get bigger, get a bigger statue. You know, we get, we get bigger models, we get bigger planes, we get bigger houses, and we assume that those things mean that we are getting better. But they don't mean that we're getting better. It just means that we're getting bigger. And anything that can get bigger can also get smaller. I'm not talking about getting broader, because getting broader just means you're going to get more stuff. Gonna get more territory. And I know people who are still praying the prayer of Jabez, pray away. I'm not saying that that's bad. But I am telling you, you can get more stuff and still not get better. You can have more things, still not get better. So it's important that we don't confuse getting better with getting bigger, getting better with getting broader. It's important that we understand getting better as a sense of improvement upon ourselves. And it's something that intentionally must focus on. The challenge to us has been, it's been difficult to do. And you know, when, when the writer of Hebrews, when he first opens up in Hebrews chapter six, it's amazing because he opens up really kind of snapping on everybody because <laughs> he opens up and he's like, yeah, so let's go on to perfection and let's lay down all this foundational stuff we've been doing. And I didn't have a problem with the writer of Hebrews at first because I was like, yeah, let's, let's get on with it. Let's, you know. Then I started looking up the stuff he called foundational. And I was like, that's all the stuff I went to school for, man. Like, I paid for that, you know. I paid to learn doctrine. <laughs> I paid to learn theology. I paid to learn about baptism and, you know, wrote thesis papers on regeneration in the spirit and what that means to go through. And he's calling that stuff the foundation, telling me I got to move on from there. Like there's more to it than that. And I was like, look, when I graduated from seminary, no, that's the end, Paul. That's not the beginning, sir. I'm sorry. Unless you're going to give me my money back, sir. Because <laughs> that can't be the beginning. That can't be the end. It can't be. Isn't that really what we thought this was? We thought, hey, I once was lost, and now I'm found. And since I'm found, that's it. Like, that's the goal. I was a sinner, and now I'm saved. And since I'm saved, I've arrived. And now Paul completely messes the whole thing up. (laughs) Years of churchism down the drain. Because Paul has an idea that we're supposed to be like God and we're supposed to be improving every day. And I'm like, come on, Paul, get a life. You know, have you ever wanted to say that sometimes? Like, come on, Paul, get a life. Probably wouldn't say it to him in person because we'll be in heaven, but, you know, get a life, man. I've got to every day be focused on going beyond the doctrine, going beyond the theology. And let me tell you all something. You all are especially gifted with an anointed pastor that one thing you cannot convince me of is that he does not know doctrine because I know he does. We can be sitting at lunch and this guy is telling me about stuff that happened in 1852 and how, you know, the Christian flag came into. I'm like, man, I just want to know, do you want fish or chicken? Like, I don't understand. I don't understand why it has to be so deep. Like. Come on, Pastor Randy, you're my brother, man. (laughs) What are we doing? You know? So I know that you get theology. I know that you get doctrine. But this is where you get stuck. Because you think that that is where he is trying to get you. 
You think that he's trying to get you to a place of knowing doctrine, to a place of knowing theology, to knowing about baptism, to knowing about the tenets of communion. And he does want you to get it. But what teacher or what pastor wants you to get knowledge that you're not ready to apply? Who wants you to know something that you're never going to put into action because you think that knowing it is good enough? And that is what Paul is saying. Paul is trying to tell them in this writing to the Hebrews that, look, now that you know all of these things, it's time for you to move into another pursuit. You are not done. You can't stop there. And so when he gets into verse 9, just like most pastors, now that he's told everybody off, he has to try to come back and correct it. Make them feel good about themselves. He's like, I wasn't really talking about you. <laughs> I was talking about the other Hebrews over there. You know, how sometimes when we preach a message that kind of rubs people the wrong way and y'all go like, mm-hmm. And we have to come back and say, you know what? I'm not going to talk about you. I'll talk about the other church down the street. You know, the one I'm not preaching at this morning. <laughs> you know? I'm not talking to you, right? And so Paul comes back and he says, look, I'm trying to tell you that I know I said all that stuff that I said. But I only said it because I want you to know that I am convinced of better things for you. And when he says better things, he's not concentrating on the word things. He doesn't mean better stuff. Don't run out the door saying, yes, Bishop Barrett said I was going to get better stuff today. No, that's not what he's saying. He singles it out and connects it to the rest of the phrase. He said, better things concerning salvation. Better things concerning the quality of your life with God and in God. He says, I'm convinced of some better things for you. Things like what he mentions in verse 10, you know, when he says, look, these are things that you need to be intentional about getting better in all the time. You need to get in, be more intentional about love to one another. He says, I need you to be more intentional about that. I need you to get better at that every day. If you've been in church for 10, 15, 20 years and you still have grudges against people, you still can't talk to people, still can't speak to certain people, you still can't forgive certain people, still can't love certain people, then guess what? Paul and I are challenging you today to say you got to get better at that. You got to get better at, at being able to love people. You got to get better in your ministry work. He says, hey, God is applauding you because you're getting better at how you minister to people. You don't have picks and chooses to people that you pray for, people that you pray about, people that instead of praying on them, <laughs> right? You don't, you, don't, you don't do that. You don't concern yourself with that. You can pray for anybody. Anyone can walk up to you and get prayer. Anyone can walk up to you and get ministry. He says, you got to get better because if you still have picks and chooses, then you are not getting better. You are stagnant. He says, you got to get better about serving people. He says, that's important. You can't just serve the people that look like you, the people that act like you, the people that live where you live. You got to be able to service anyone who needs service. The only requirement for serving someone is that they need it. It's very easy to serve somebody that doesn't need it. Christ says, I'm not calling you to love the people and serve the people and minister to the people that don't need it. I'm calling you to service the people who need it the most. And they may be the very people that don't like you. They may be the very people that mistreat you. 
I know this is kind of tight right now, but he said, I'm calling you to get better. And then lastly, he says, in your giving. He says, I'm calling you to get better in your giving. Every day, you have to be intentional. If you gave $2 last week, he says, get better, give more. So you can give, because it's not about the amount, it's about the heart. He says, and it shows your condition of health. It shows your condition of growing when you are constantly getting better. And I've learned something. Getting better is not something that others can force you to do. You have to have a self-desire. That's why I called it the pursuit of it, right? You have to want to pursue it. Have you ever tried to force your dog to chase the ball? It doesn't work. Either he wants to chase the ball or he doesn't. <laughs> what are you going to do? Pull him by the leash and yeah, come on, chase the ball, right? No, because that's you chasing the ball and you're dragging him along with you. It's important that we understand that. And, 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 I, and I have to talk about this, the enemies to this pursuit of getting better. We find them later on, I believe in the 12th verse or something like that, right? He starts talking about the enemies of doing better. He says, the first is, he says, I always want you to be diligent. When you are not being diligent, then you are being stagnant. Stagnation is usually form of distraction, right? When you're not diligent with something, it's usually because you are distracted in another direction. We had last year, oh, just a hard year last year. And still there are people who are distracted in the body of Christ. They're distracted from love. They're distracted from getting better in their fellowship. Why? Because people may be thinking a different way or have two different ideologies. Look, that stuff doesn't matter. We just need to get better at loving each other and make sure that we are diligently always pursuing that embetterment. Then he says this other word in verse 12. He says, when you become sluggish. Sluggish, you know, slow down, slothful kind of, you know, walking. He says that that can happen to you when you're distracted, when you're off the mark. And then, you know, you just become lazy. I think the NIV uses the word lazy. Don't become lazy. You know how easy it is to just start putting things off. Oh, I missed this one Sunday. I don't want to go this Sunday. I'm not going there, right? Even though it's on Zoom, all I got to do is sit in the living room and push the button. But I don't like Zoom church, so I'm not going to go until we go back. And then there are some people who said that they were going to come back to church when the church doors open, that they're not here today because they took yesterday for granted. So understand that we're always have to be focused on making sure that we're getting better in life because if we're not focused on getting better and we're not intentionally pursuing getting better every single day of our lives, then we move into lives that exemplify hopelessness. We move into lives that exemplify depression, that exemplify sadness, that exemplify frustration. Find me a person who is not in the pursuit of getting better, and I'll tell you or show you a person who is upset with themselves and frustrated with you because I don't care what you say. We are not created to be the same. We're not created to stay the same. We're created to always be in pursuit of better and better and better. And until you wake up in the morning, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying before, but until you wake up in the morning and you can challenge yourself with this saying, it says, good, better, best, never let it rest 
until your good becomes better and your better becomes best. If you are not always in the pursuit of better, you will never reach your best. And since you can't reach your best until we're all with God on that great day, then every day you wake up, you owe it to God and you owe it to yourself to intentionally always think about, always move about, always be about the business of getting better every day, giving better every day, loving better every day, fellowshipping better every day. All the things that we're called to do because reading your Bible and continuing to go to church and all the things that we do, eventually, if you don't begin to intentionally pursue better, all those things, they're going to cease one day. And why? Because the enemy of boredom is more powerful than the enemy of distraction. Boredom takes people out. You cannot afford to become bored in these days. I need you to challenge yourself to get back in the pursuit. I'm not saying that you're not pursuing now, but I am saying to you that that pursuit doesn't end. We're struggling for sameness. In this earth, we want happiness to be a place that we can reach in this earth and never have to move. But happiness is not so on this planet. But what we can do is pursue it by having the idea and having the heart and the mind to say to ourselves constantly, good, better, better. Never let it rest till my good becomes better and my better becomes best. Will you all stand with me? I'm going to ask you to pray along with me. And all I want you to pray, if it's so founded in your heart, is that that revival will take place in you that will never allow you to settle with the you that you are now, but will always see yourself somewhere in the future where you look much better than you look right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to be in this space, in this place. I thank you for your people who are here to receive your word along with me Holy Spirit, I ask that you would ignite again in us a fire. Pull us back from the distractions of the world. Wake us up from the sluggishness that has taken place in our walks. And put us on fire, on revival fire, that we once again can make the claim and walk the walk. Good, better, best. Never let it rest. Till our good becomes better and our better becomes best. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.